After three deployments in the Navy, eight years of gym ownership, and an incredible amount of personal development work, today's guest brings us a unique perspective and interpretation of leadership and what's really important in life too. He shares these lessons from failing to take ownership, how he learned about humility, and how to think objectively without attachment. Now, he is balancing his business ventures while he eagerly awaits the birth of his daughter. As a person who has a huge heart and truly wants to see his loved ones succeed, he is often referred to as the mystical giant bringing his powerful energy into every room he enters. We talk about how he's evolved over the years and what he's thinking about now as he's about to become a dad. We also get into some philosophical debates about the need for emotion in decision-making and informing your beliefs. Now, I want you to make sure that you bookmark and take some notes. Listen to this more than once so you can pick up on all of the little, take out the little, the massive knowledge bombs that were dropped in this special episode with my really good friend, Chase Tollison. Now, let's get to the show. And uh, yesterday I got to um, interview, uh, I got to talk to, to Captain, the, the one and only Captain Taylor Morgan. Ooh. And we had, we had recorded twice. We recorded on Friday and then again yesterday because I fucked up the audio. And uh, he graci- graciously accepted a second interview. Um, and yeah, I, I just... We, we got on the call and I just hit record. I'm like, we don't need to waste time. We're fucking professionals. <laughs> That's uh, the one that I published this week with Dave and Brooks uh, yeah. from Chop Club. That's we just as soon as we got on, I hit record. It's like it's like we're back at the summit, basically. <laughs> just, just like t- tuning back in, turning things back on. Uh-huh. Exactly. You can drop in there real, real quickly. That's at, and I lost the audio to my episode with Anthony Moralda, the of mm-hmm. building men. And he, he's been gracious enough to reschedule. So I know how that goes. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes um, I overcommit <laughs> to things. I ended up, so we ended up doing the, the, that first interview. I was uh, traveling that day for uh to a presentation that a client was doing and uh i knew like i had to squeeze in a certain amount of time and have to drive like an hour and a half so i drove early to my destination and found a place with wi-fi and you know what i thought would be a quiet outdoor patio area where i could sit and you know podcast and then 10 minutes into the interview, the place just crowds and people are yelling in the background. It turned into that kind of uh, scene really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's <laughs> when funny. we get to adjust, right? And, and I'd imagine how was that second conversation better than the first that you guys recorded? 
Um, no, I mean, they were both fucking great. Okay. Well, was yeah. it at least as good as the first, I should say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it, like I out. said, though, we're, we're pros. I mean, you and I have talked how many times on a podcast at this point? <laughs> um, I, we, I, I do believe we need two hands to count it now. This would, yeah, exactly. This yeah. would be like, um, there's a lot. Plus, um, you know, we do this every day. It's just going to keep getting better. <laughs> And I don't allow hiccups to like bother me like I used to, you know, like something like that would have, I would have felt guilt and uh, I would have felt really bad, but I was like, no, let me just, let's just re-record or just record a whole different podcast. Like, (laughs) or just record a whole different podcast. (laughs) I a hundred percent. I get that. Yeah. I I dropped a dozen eggs on the floor today. (laughs) I dropped it. I just bought these eggs. They're nice farm fresh. They were just, they were either picked today or yesterday. Like they were either made, dropped out of the hen today or yesterday. Uh, nice farm fresh jum- jumbo eggs are likely eight bucks for the dozen. And I dropped them all. Every single one had a crack in it. Nice. Luckily, you- only one was broke all over the floor. Every single one was broken though. That was, that's a good chance to like use all the eggs and see if you could eat a dozen eggs at once. Just drink them like the captain does. <laughs> that would have been the move. Of course, then I would have then I would have ended my fast. I would have broke my fast. True. So. True. This is the the longest intentional fast I've done actually. So longest intentional fast. Yeah. 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 How long I, are you at right now? So this is I mean, and I say that because I've known about the benefits mm-hmm. and then listening to Dr. Sinclair on the Huberman lab. And then on his lifespan podcast, talk about the nitty gritty. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll dig in a little more. Um, let's see. So I finished dinner at seven 30 last night and it's one 30 now. So mm-hmm. we are what's that's six hours. So 18 hours I'm at 18. So still in relatively easy realm. Yeah. Um, the, the ice bath, the four and a half minutes in the ice made me a bit hungry and Did that'll subside. Is that a my body? Uh, yeah. Response? My body knows I usually eat right there. Mm. Oh, you're used to uh, eating after your ice bath. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I've been cute. doing, uh, I've been training for the Ironman and I've been really enjoying fasted training as long as it's uh you know, like early in the day. <laughs> what um, is it that you enjoy about fasted training? Things feel settled in my gut. And um, it's, it, I don't know, for me, it's a, it's a test. I'm like, just the fact that I know I haven't eaten, I think that I'm doing something better. And so I work a little bit harder. The results are, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing results in my, my how I feel and in my running times and in my cycling times um, so that's what I notice and uh, and yeah if I'm if I do it first thing in the morning well the fast is not that long at that point it's like 10 12 hours um, but if I wait and do it after a 16 hour fast um, like today I, I I went for a run um what time was it? It was around noon. 
and I still hadn't eaten anything. Well, I, I did have my, my bulletproof coffee, which I imagine breaks, breaks the fast, depending how much, how much butter I put in. Right. I don't know. Yeah. They were good, actually though. talking about that on lifespan. Yeah. Sinclair himself. He has a little bit of yogurt to take his, uh, resveratrol with, uh-huh. uh, because you need something, uh, like an oil. So he has like yogurt and olive oil because resveratrol won't work if you take it with just water it, uh, it's, it's essentially like brick dust it just sinks to the bottom of the water you want uh, something more fatty or oily with it uh, uh, and he's like you know technically i'm taking something in and it does it break my fast does it you know destroy the the metabolic benefits no so no, if a Harvard professor says we can eat a little bit of fat and protein in the morning, like a little tiny bit, it'd still be good. I think the bulletproof coffee, unless you got a whole stick of butter in there, who knows? Uh, sometimes, man, I don't, <laughs> I don't measure. I go by, I go by feel, I swear. I'm, and it's usually, it's like five in the morning and I just woke up and, and I'm like trying to measure eyeball measure butter. And it's about, you know, a tablespoon. That's what I tell myself every time. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, how much coffee I feel like I need at the time and blend it all up. Yeah. So it could be, it could be like a couple of calories or it could be an entire day's serving of, uh, of, of, but is it, is it Kerrygold? Yeah, of course. Is it, did you see the new, new stuff coming out about Kerrygold though? No, you didn't. Oh, they're, they're in hot water for claiming grass fed. Hmm. Yeah. Because apparently, and I have, I still have Kerrygold in my fridge because I just found out about this. Um, apparently, well, they are not, <laughs> it, it tastes great, but they're not yeah. completely grass fed. Mm. They're feeding their cows corn and, you know, they're, they're corn finished cows basically. And, and even, and then some, I think I, I, I hesitate to quote specifics. And I'm sure if we had a, Hey, Jamie, pull it up kind of guy here. We really need, I really want one of those. Right. I want someone to Google stuff for, for me. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway, fun fact, Kerrygold is not as grass fed as they, their packaging would lead people to believe. There's a different brand I've been buying once in a while. Uh, I think it's truly not like the, the alcohol. It's like, no. A, no. yeah, truly is the, the, the brand. Um, yeah. That one was good. I can taste the difference between like a regular stick of butter though and the Kerrygold or the Truly. Like I can taste a huge difference. It's it's like completely different foods. Hotter, yes. Um, Even if it's not 100% grass fed and finished. Do you have any farms you could go get like farm fresh butter from? Um, relatively near me, yeah. That's, I get raw farm milk every week and that's the eggs i dropped today and we're from the farm and then uh the butter and the Kerrygold's really really good and we keep it in the fridge for when we run out of the farm butter mm. there is another level to like that really grass-fed that farm richness, fresh yeah. yeah it's and it's harder too the Kerrygold. it's soft it's softer it's easier to work with really the the farm fresh stuff is it's interesting it's really good do you leave it out or do you keep it in refrigerated you can leave it out i I keep it refrigerated you can leave it out i have a friend that uh raises chickens and would give us eggs once in a while 
And when she said, don't refrigerate them, I was very confused. They actually last longer or I don't know. They, they stay fresh longer. That, that's so interesting. The farm store where I, the eggs I broke. That's where that's the yeah. good, good topic today. <laughs> <laughs> Just staying uh, on your mistakes, man. <laughs> right. They, well, it's, it's what relevant. bought us. It's what bought us the time that, that we both wanted for yeah. this podcast. Right. Uh, yeah, and they, their eggs are in the cooler when they sell them. And I, wow. I wonder if that's just for optics or for health department stuff. I would imagine so. Yeah. Which I'm sure it is, is just leverage over the right, the stores. And it's <laughs> my buddy who has a smoothie shop in town talking about that. Uh, I hear dogs. Yep. Let's see. What time is it? It's about time for FedEx, I do believe. So, mm. are you yep. expecting a package? I'm not. We are expecting a child, though. So, I'm sure my wife is expecting packages. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Every day for the next like few months, you can just expect something in the mail. Yeah. 23 weeks, 23 weeks tomorrow. Yeah. So, I'm getting close over yeah. that halfway point. We saw we saw Thea move through her belly for the first time last night. So, oh my god, yeah, that gets wild, man. It starts to happen very frequently. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's fun to watch. It's nuts. <laughs> I'm talking about the oversight, though. My buddy has a smoothie shop, and they got put in the newspaper. And they wrote an article, and and you can get CBD in your drinks. As yeah. soon as the health department saw that, they're like CBD. They come in, they, they were doing droppers and they were putting CBD into people's drinks and the health yeah. department comes in like, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to buy these individually packaged doses and you have to give it to the customer and then they can put it in their drink. But uh, you can't put hemp products into their drink for them. Is that their, the law in uh, Illinois? Yeah, in Illinois. Yep. It's interesting. It's, uh, it's I'm, uh, I'm still reading at, uh, Atlas Shrugged. Oh, where are you in it? What, what part of the story? This is the second conversation today about Atlas yeah. Shrug that I've had. So. Today? Yeah. 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 Um, I'm, I'm in chapter two. Okay. Right. So, and for people listening, chapter two is like 500 pages in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm listening to it though. It's a 60 something hour book and I'm half, a little more than halfway through it. Um. So you're into the story. Oh yeah, very much yeah. so. And, and there were points and I, I'm, I've been listening to this like intently cause I want to finish it. Um, so I'm like making an effort to like listen more. Um, but uh, points in the last few days, you know, over the last couple of chapters or sections, I, I was like uh, afraid <laughs> of the truth, you know, mm. the, the, one part where the a scientist is talking to Reardon about, uh, you know, ha having leverage over him and, you know, either sending him to jail or uh, making him give in to the, the government's will, yeah. right? And he said something like, we only create these laws so people can break them so we can hold that against them. Oh, it's, <laughs> and, and 
I know I'm still cold from the ice and all my hairs just stood up as you said that. Yeah. I read that book. I'm 34 now. First time I read that book was 12 years ago this summer when I was on deployment and wow. Like she wrote it in the fifties, if I recall. Yeah. And the way that she picked up on that, the conversation I had earlier, a gentleman was talking about outwitting the devil Napoleon Hill was, which was written even earlier. Yeah. And the stuff that they talk about in these books that you can see coming to play now, years and years later is outrageous. It is mind blowing. I mean, it's expected. It's fair. It's a retelling of the same story over and over. That's our lives. Mm -hmm. We're retelling the same story with different characters and with different, um, we can call them modalities, right? Problems that exist. There's Mm -hmm. this, the same bullshit story. And it's all about, um, you know, who has power over who and who wants, um, who wants more of it. Um, and then there's the good people, right? The people out there that are doing good, who are often put uh, at the, you know, put well below the people that aren't. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you when when you get done with Atlas Shrugged, the Fountainhead. Yeah, that's um, next. Yes, that one focuses more on uh, the individual, and Atlas mm. Shrugged is more the system the system Uh, yeah the fountainhead is you want to talk about people wow i i have a quote from atlas shrugged on my ribs it's riddled with negations and i still (laughs) um it's not that i don't suffer it's that i know the unimportance of suffering Mm -hmm. i know that pain is to be fought and thrown aside not to be accepted as part of one's soul and as a permanent scar across one's view of existence i mean I read that at age 22. I was like, that's it. That's going <laughs> on my body. I bet you, I imagine you, um, you took that, you know, as more than just words at the time. Yeah. And where, where, de- where were you? You were on deployment at that point in your life, right? I was on deployment. I had a girlfriend back home who I was realizing had a, uh, and to be fair, two-way street. I was a young kid in the Navy. I was, uh, and girlfriend back home who I was realizing wasn't the person I wanted her to be. Um, real, I was falling out of love with the Navy and growing disenfranchised with a broken leadership structure. And yeah, that, that quote really, 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 really resonated. Mm-hmm. And it, it still does. I mean, you're the, you're the second person in two days to talk about the broken leadership structure in the military. <laughs> <laughs> we talked, I cause... talked about that with, uh, with Taylor yesterday. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious too. And, and, you know, this podcast is very much about uh, leadership too. Um, how did you recognize that? How did you recognize that the structure of leadership in the Navy was broken? Hmm. So the pay grades in the military, you know, E1, E2, up to E9, enlisted, one, two, three, four, right. five, six, seven, eight, nine. Non-officers, right? Yes, exactly. So officers are O's, enlisted yeah. are E's. Uh, when I was in E3, may have been an E2, I believe I was in E3, my first deployment, some guys were out in town getting drunk, and we lived on the ship my first deployment. 
Uh, and we most of the time we're in port because we're a small ship. Where were you deployed to? Bahrain. Bahrain. Thanks, yep. So westernized uh, island yeah. nation uh, just east of Saudi Arabia in the Persian Gulf. So guys would go out at night and drink and I was on duty and I was saying a sounding and security watch My there's not much security in it. It's uh, making sure that all the ship's machinery is running correctly. I'll go around, just take hourly readings, make sure that everything is running. I uh, pull oil samples as according, you know, as I was supposed to. And you know, that was my watch. Well, when duty van gets back at night, and an E5, who had been with the crew for a couple of years, stumbles out, stumbles across the brow, down to birthing, falls into his rack. And we find out he had puked in the duty van, in the back of the van. Well, guess who was made to go clean up this other grown man's vomit because he was too intoxicated to take care of himself? Me. And that was the first time that I realized that the military is essentially like there are good, very honorable people doing awesome thing out there. There are people like I joined with great intention mm -hmm. and there are a lot of men and women. I was on a ship with all men. So this is my lens. There were a lot of men using it as a babysitting service for adults. <laughs> um, that one. And then another fun story, chiefs in the Navy, they're E seven, eight, nine. If one of us got, not one of us, because I did not indulge, and one of us, as in one of us enlisted, enlisted. if one of the enlisted individuals, uh, lower enlisted, got caught with, we had flats out in town, our second and third in deployment. So if we got caught with a hooker in our room, it was bad days, like restricted to the ship. This and like, just on the other hand, my chief, who got caught with a hooker, got a slap on the wrist and got to go about his time. He had this woman living in his flat while he was at work. And master chief of the ship went in to do an inspection and found her there. He just got a little slap on there. This guy used to come down to morning quarters when we were in the shipyard with his hard hat on backwards, no belt on his coveralls, and sit there and try and tell us how to do our job. So, because he was still drunk. Entitlement, man. Yep. You know, I question though, what the fuck was going on in his head that he was needed, felt the need to be drunk, you know? Well, I, I, feel, I feel a sense of compassion for people like that who have so much entitlement. Looking back on it, yes. As a... Uh, pissed off 23 24 year old in the navy no it was always it was all his fault he was doing it on purpose to harm you of yeah. course yeah and it's a good and it's unfortunately uh that's a snapshot of what you see across the board i imagine and and i'm sure if, uh you know a slap on the wrist was because it's you know at someone for someone at a higher rank right there's there's too much on the line to cause any trouble whether, whether that be uh um publicity like you know the the public image factor or you know replacing well, someone and that's why things get swept under the rug so often with officers and higher enlisted until you find out 
like really, really hairy things that get the press involved. And then mm. captains lose command of their ship. Yeah. Uh, and, and they get transferred to a different, different uh, post with, with less responsibility. It's only once it gets publicized that, oh, wait, now we got to really punish this person. Yeah. There's ships out there that like. That's to uphold the law. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. oh, it's, it's out in the public. So now we have to do something. Otherwise they'll realize it's all a sham. <laughs> they'll realize yeah. we have no control over them. Right. That's, that's the, the, the premise behind it. Yeah. It's uh, my parents, uh, grief counselor he was navy and he let them in he pulled back the curtain to how dysfunctional it is and how and my mom was talking she's like you know this whole time i thought you were you know when you were in the navy i was like oh my son's over there doing great things it's that like that was probably really hard for you to have to deal with all that nonsense yeah you know it was fun we got through it though yeah it's a, it's a hell of a ride, man. And I, someone asked me earlier, like, you're 34. You're so young. How do you have all that? I'm like, well, I spent four years and three deployments in the Navy with a bunch of other people from all around the world. So that helps. So while we can sit here, like the leadership has a massive opportunity. And when you can take, when you can see leadership that is flawed, or people that have uh, things to heal mm-hmm. and you can walk away from that and then look back on it and learn from it. I, I, I believe that's one Avenue for really good leaders to develop out of, because you can see things that, that where there are opportunities. The, when stories come up about things like that, man, I, I imagine you learn a lesson every time. <laughs> every time. And and thinking about what you just said, I could I could see um, I could see how the 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 people who went into it with good intentions um, end up getting a bad taste in their mouth. They leave. They can become some of the greatest leaders yeah and yeah i did have a chief for my last six months i was in Mm -hmm. who was a fucking he if that man had been my chief for like a year earlier Mm -hmm. i likely would have ended up staying in the military because you do get those odd gems in there and this guy looked out for us. He made sure we were off work at a reasonable time, which was really rare for people that worked in the engine room. Like it was our job to keep that ship running. The Navy, yeah. Navy runs on lowest bidders with a strict, with a tight budget. And we don't have parts anywhere near where we need them. So uh, we get made to work 36 hour days to try and get something running that we don't have the right parts for. And mm-hmm. He stuck up for us and he, uh, you know, after I left the ship, I found out that even when I left, he, he was singing my praises. I was like, that's a, he was a hell of a leader. He would be down there working on stuff with us when we were there late. And, you know, so you get those, those good examples and the, the, the poor examples and you meet somewhere in the middle and <laughs> yeah. 
it's a it's a luck of the draw i'm sure you get there's there's definitely both there's definitely the the great examples and the poor examples and you know if you line up with the person you know at with one person at the right time you know you could be the influence on them to make them great or give them the opportunity to stand out right um, and at the same time, they, they can do the same thing for you, or you could, you know, it could be mutual destruction and you both bring each other down. That tends to happen too. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. What are some I, I of will... the qualities I want? I want I'm curious. What are some of Please. the other qualities you notice in great leadership? The first word that comes to mind is humility. Uh, the the ability to listen to those who they are leading and learn from them uh, because there are individuals and I, I was there when I first started running my gym uh, who get into spots of leadership and like, well, this is the way because I, I'm up here and you're down there mm. and you're going to do what I say. And no, I don't want to hear it. And to me, that's one of the biggest is, being able to listen to the people that you have, that you're leading and being open to shifting your perspective, perspective or approach on it, uh, according to what the people who are actually in the trenches are giving you. Humility. Mm -hmm. And that that's come up a lot. Humility for me, at least, um, mostly times where I recognize I'm not being humble. Um, mm. And then there's other times where you're forced, you're forced to uh, be humble, be humbled. You, you get humbled by things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's come up a lot for me. And it's been uh, something I've been, um, curious about um is there a line that can be drawn of you know what's too humble Ooh, because well, because i've known people that are overly um humble about things and, I, and in some leadership it's really valuable to have an ego I, I love that you went there with it because to me that brings up like in lifted level two, owning the wins kind of thing. Uh, yeah. There are That's individuals. Part of it. Yeah. You know, there are people who can, you know, we get taught to be humble and that gets taken as far as playing small or right. always looking to others for the answer. And there's a, a middle line there. Um, some validation is really useful and productive. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're in a spot of leadership, like individuals are looking to be led. Yeah. You know, like you, you to exude no authority and, you know, create a super flat structure. You're no longer a leader. You're a team member. And somebody needs to, and I'll use need, yeah. It is very beneficial. I'll take away the need. It might be a need. And it's very beneficial to have somebody who brings the direction. 
And yeah, you know, and, where I and, see that is, is, you know, the person who can do that, mm-hmm. right. We can assign the title of, you know, they're the leader of the group. We can assign that title. Um, when done really well, it's they're gaining the trust of people to interpret everything and make the best decision. Mm. Right. And then be able to speak with confidence on what that is. Um, and, and here's the, the, the caveat is when you do that, you also take all responsibility. hundred percent. And that interpret everything to me is where the humility comes in because if we're there are a certain level of humility because if we're not taking that information and assessing it at the very least mm-hmm. and we're just doing it how we think it should be done which might be the right way and if we're getting inputs let's see where these inputs are are leading us and if there's any validity to them All right i mean you wouldn't do something because you, you think it's the way, right? Mm-hmm. Ideally, you do some research yep. or you follow a system, right? And most people in leadership positions, especially in the military, they're, they're following processes, systems that were well-established, done before, um, evaluated, reiterated. Often, um, often, developed doing... by the, often developed by the Department of Redundancy Department, though. Yeah. <laughs> no harm in, in uh, checking your work, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we might as well do it again just because. Uh-huh. But, but a lot of times people are put into leadership positions where their only role is to follow order, follow directions. And then there's a conf- they're, they're conflicted right? With what they know to be true and servicing the group versus doing what's right, what they're told. I like that. And that's, you know, I was put in a a middle, middle management position, if you will, for the end of my term in the Navy. And I had sailors under me and, you know, something didn't get done one time. I remember I Somebody above me so like, well, why didn't the filters get changed? We had filters on the outside of the ship to keep the, the yeah. sand from coming into the engines. And I don't know if he was supposed to do it. He's like, well, that's your petty officer, petty officer. I'm like, fucking A. Like, hey, man, what happened? He's like, I don't know. I didn't do it. I'm like, well, why didn't you do it? Well, because I didn't. I'm like, well, I told you to fucking do it yesterday. <laughs> I, like, I got real like, so that's not a fucking answer. Like, uh, let's go get that done right now. And did you, you actually told him to do it the day before? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It was assigned to him the day before. Gotcha. He was, if I recall correctly, he had been in the Navy slightly longer than me. It was his second command. I outranked him though. And people like that get, um, mm-hmm. a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's like, sorry, dude. Like there was a guy on our crew who was in, who had been in for 12 years, wore the same rank as me. And he was absolutely worthless. Um, and I will say my leadership towards the end of my term was good enough to let me get away with just reaming this guy out 
at one point publicly in the middle of the passageway outside the engine room. And they were watching and they didn't do anything, which was cool. Um, <laughs> is it, was, is it though? Could you have handled it better? I could. I, you know what? You could have taken ownership and in, in a different, in a different environment, I could have handled it better. Um, mm. And with with more sleep than an average of four and a half hours a night, yeah, uh, and with more awareness, I I could have handled it better. For what happened at the time, yeah, um, because he had been in the Navy for twelve years, and there was a piece of machinery that doing the same job for twelve years, piece of machinery that has three valves and a start button to align it. You open the intake valves, you open the two exhaust, the two output valves. One of the valves gives you good water, one gives waste water. Mm-hmm. And then you press start. And we didn't have a diagram for this new piece of machinery yet because it was just installed. But we had two others just like it. We already knew how to run this thing, right? And he's on watch down there and they're trying to tell him to align the 2000 gallon, the 2KRO, 2000 gallon per day reverse osmosis water unit. And he didn't know how to do it because there wasn't a diagram. So I get woken up at 2.30 in the morning, get told to do it because Evans doesn't know how to do it. You stand there in the passageway when I come up. And, well, I, there's no, nothing in EOS yet. I was half asleep and pissed off. I'm like, yeah, I could have handled it better. And Evans, you've been in the Navy for 12 fucking years. You've aligned how many pieces of machinery? There's three valves on this. Intake, two outlets, start button. It's that easy. You know how to do this. You're taking the easy way out right now. And I, I you are I, pretty sure I, I likely, I mean, we're getting like 10 years away removed from this now. Um, I likely called him worthless and a couple others names. I look over his shoulder and my, my chief and then the officer in charge of our department. We're staying there a few feet back out of the passageway outside of central control for engineering with all the, where they call down and bosses around in the engine rooms. I just stand there and look over shoulder. I'm like, oh, I'm going to hear about that. I go down, flip the valve, start the button, 2KRO aligned, go back to bed, and I never heard a peep. Mm. Um, and yes, is there a way to handle it better? Totally. And is there, is there a place for that too? Yeah. Like sometimes, the, sometimes, <laughs> like this guy. 12 years in did you have, you, you, you have permission to to lash out and uh-huh. and also like nothing personal dude <laughs> yeah <laughs> nothing personal um i think at the time there was definitely some personal because sleep was coveted and this guy we were on rotating watches so i'm sure the night before i had a watch through the middle of the night and the next night, I was likely going to have one through the middle of the night. This is the one night where I was going to get some sleep. Mm. And because he couldn't do his job, and I had to go do it for him with like a decade less in the Navy than him. Yeah. So, mm. you know, that's, uh, that's fun. No, hum- no humility there, man. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> If I recall, you learned to scuba dive when you were in the Navy, correct? I didn't, I didn't learn while I did dive in Oman. I learned oh. to scuba dive when I was 15. Oh, that's right. You went when you were when you were younger. 
Yeah, I would. I would. Yep. Yeah. Good memory. I was 15. There's a 16 year old girl on the boat, and I ended up hanging out with her all weekend. Naturally. Naturally. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, and I did dive in uh, Oman though. Super sandy. Where's Oman? Muscat, Oman, um, Middle East. It's it's in the Persian Gulf. What what um. Where did you dive? What sea? Was it Mediterranean? I, I, I imagine we we're still in the Persian Gulf. In the Persian Gulf? Yeah. Okay, um, so south. Yeah. You said it was south like south. hard to hard to see? Yeah, the visibility was much worse in the Caribbean. Um, and uh, I saw a couple eels. It was sandy. You know, and a few sea urchins. One guy we were diving with got booted with a sea urchin right outside of his fin and he was all swollen up for like two weeks after that like he had we came up and he had like a group of needles on him it was it was great (laughs) but we got done scuba diving i had camel for the first time and and then we went and rode atvs you ate camel yeah what's that like gamey yeah i imagine like a horse yeah if you've ever eaten horse <laughs> i've never eaten horse I don't, can you eat yeah. horse some people do huh. yeah, um i didn't know so i didn't know people ate camel yeah oh yeah so i take that back i just looked at uh muscat is in the gulf of oman <laughs> okay yeah i have their own gulf it's right outside the persian gulf mm-hmm. so yeah, I remember this now. So you go past Dubai and Abu Dhabi, you go through the, the Straits of Hormuz, um, a little thin part there, and then Muscat is out there. And Oman hangs there. And on the other side of Oman is the Arabian Sea. Where we were at, though, was in the Gulf of Oman. So How long, how long were you out there? The longest that we were underway was 14 days. So I had, we're on a small ship, right? And we could only hold enough stores for 14 days, enough food and everything else. And by the time 14 days came, uh, we're not an aircraft carrier. We don't have a trash compactor. So we would be full of trash up on our upper decks. Um, so the longest I was underway was 14 days. We're on a small wooden ship. So even moderate seas tossed us about. So that was why we had to fly back and forth from San Diego to Bahrain. Because those ships went 14 knots at max and they couldn't handle very tough seas. Mm. So they're not sailing through the Pacific from San Diego down so they through stayed in that, in the, in the Gulf. They stayed. Yeah. So there were ships in San Diego that we would train up on. Yeah. And then there were ships we would fly over, switch hulls, mm. swap with the crew. Uh, and then we would man up one of the ships and, how often did you do that? Did you have to fly back and forth? I had three deployments. So, okay. Yeah. Three times. We go to San Diego to Washington, Dulles to Kuwait to Bahrain. That Dulles to Kuwait, if I recall correctly, was 14 hours. So three of those, that was fun. And you're not on a, on a commercial plane, right? No. So we actually were. Oh, you were? Our crew. Yeah. Um, we weren't like on the C-130 military planes. No, we're, we're the Navy. We have a, a little better than, than some, 
on my way back from my final deployment, getting out of the Navy though, I was on a rotator, they call it. Yeah. So they go military base to military base. So it went Bahrain to Italy, to Spain, to Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and then I was supposed to take a flight from Norfolk, Virginia to Washington, Dulles, and then Dulles to San Diego. Well, I had like an eight hour gap in there. So I rented a car in Norfolk, Virginia, drove up to Washington area where my second cousin works at the Pentagon, lives in Washington area. I had lunch with them and then I go to the airport and they're like, oh, you don't have a reservation for this flight because you missed your flight from Norfolk to Washington, Dallas. And at this point, I'm, sh I'm shitting my pants, man, because I'm like, oh, if I don't get back to San Diego, I'm be marked, you know, unauthorized absence and I'm gonna get in a whole bunch of trouble. Yeah. So luckily they found me another seat, got me on there. And, but yeah, little thing. If, if you guys ever skip the first leg, don't ever skip the first leg of your flight and then think that you're still going to have the second leg on your ticket. Mm. Fun fact. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder why. I guess, yeah, you, you have the flight as like a connection. Yeah. You know, like people do that to save money all the time by connecting flights and then get off at a certain airport because there's, it's called like skip something. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll so they'll only take the first flight. Yeah. They'll only take the first flight because that connecting flight through a certain airport to a less desirable destination yeah. is actually cheaper than a nonstop into that airport. That's interesting. It's I wouldn't I wouldn't guess that because I mean why not treat it as each one is its individual is an individual flight. Because then you can load, you know, as many people onto each one as possible instead of it seems very limiting. I don't know. You'd think and I'd imagine I'm overthinking it's a scheduling it. thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'd imagine it's a scheduling thing. Why do I care about that? Why are we <laughs> like, uh, wait a minute, this doesn't I'll, matter. I'll ask my dad. He's a retired uh, airline pilot. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's something I've been really wanting to, to do uh, is, is start flying, get a, get my pilot's license. It's I uh, was supposed my to. parents were um, both pilots. Oh, cool. Like commercially or no. Uh, well, okay. my, my grandfather was, was a commercial pilot for Pan Am. And he owned a couple of small planes that my parents used to fly. We have a summer home upstate and a little airstrip there. Uh, That's cool. All before I was born. And then my grandfather uh, crashed one of those planes and, and died. Mm. And uh, my, yeah, my parents haven't flown since, but I've always felt like a call to it. And I got to do one flight uh, a couple of years ago. Um, it was like a, you know, I got to hold the, the controls and I got to land, but I couldn't take off or maybe it was, it was vice versa. I don't remember. Yeah. That's uh, it's fun, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, with my dad being a pilot, I was supposed to be a, I was supposed to be a third generation United pilot. Oh yeah. Uh, Charles Bennett Tolleson, the third, now it's going to be the third United pilot. And, um, so what happened? But, it's going to be a fun story. <laughs> so you can get your glider license at 14. And that's like the, the earliest path to learning to fly. 
I had been flying all the simulators at the house. We had, you know, on Windows 98 and Windows 2000, we had the flight sims with the, the yoke and the rudder pedals and everything. And I was 13 when 9-11 happened. My, like, it was doctors, lawyers, and airline pilots before 9-11. It was like the golden three. You get one of those jobs, you're set. You have this beautiful contract. Um, my dad was making in 2001, $200,000 a year. In 2001, that was a lot of money. Um, he took at least a 50% pay reduction and didn't work for six months. Um, after, after 9-11, after 9/11. Yeah, their, their contract got completely restructured. The type of plane he was flying, the Boeing 727, was getting dated. And United was incrementally going to start parking them. Well, here's the thing. When 9-11 happens and the FAA says, you need these high security doors on the cockpit now. United parked all of the 27s. And it, there was this backlog of getting 727 pilots into school for different airplanes. Hmm. So my dad took a pay hit. He didn't work for six months. He took and he went down to a more junior seat on a different airplane. And I mean, he sold his uh, BMW three series and bought a $14,000 Chevy tracker, you know, uh, all that to give context to the fact that there was not cash for a chase to get glider lessons at age 14. Hmm. So between that and seeing what hit the industry took and how it shifted, and um, I, I lost interest. And I will say, after trying a year of community college, there was a few months there where I started studying again. I was going to go back to school. And then I went back for another semester for my gen education stuff. And general ed stuff, like I get it, just don't do it. You know, like, like I go in and yeah. I get bored. Like I want to learn about what I want to learn about. You know, yeah. and for me to sit through, you know, these, these base level classes was rough and my GPA was point point seven four two. Um, so that, that's the context as to what happened there. My dad <laughs> does have, he's retired now and he does have a pits and a super decathlon. Both are aerobatic small planes. Nice. Um, does he still get up in those often? Yeah often yeah. like it is a gorgeous day right now and i'm actually quite surprised that i haven't heard him up there yet because usually when he's out he'll come circle a couple times i'll go outside he throws the smoke on does a couple does another circle gives me a wing wag and goes but yeah he has smoke on both his airplanes and it's um it, it's cool he's living a good life um, but he has two tail draggers and i'm wondering if he knows anybody with a plane, anybody with a still valid instructor's license, uh, who I can learn from on the cheap, or if he can recertify mm. his instructor's license, because that would be cool. I'm pretty sure anyone with a, and maybe that's state to state, but anyone with a license can also instruct. Yeah, there's something. I remember him talking about it. But then you may need to go through like an accredited institution to get qualifying hours or something. I'm making all this up, but it sounds right. I, 
it's not a license, like a certificate. There's something that he had talked about before. Cause there's somebody else who wanted to learn a couple of years back. I know there's different ratings depending on the plane. Mm-hmm. It might just be uh, rounding out his ratings or something so he can. Maybe. Because he, that was how he got started. He was one of the, the last to take an unconventional route into airline pilot. Because yeah. now it's everybody has a college education because you're either a military aviator and go in or you, college education into aviation. Boom. Yeah. My dad was a flight instructor. He flew freight and he has some hairy stories from flying freight through storms. And then he got hired on at American Eagle and he flew a little twin prop ATRs for American Eagle for a while. And then he got hired on at United. So, and then he quit United last year, uh, essentially a forced retirement because they were uh, requiring certain things for employment that he would rather be able to choose whether he does certain things. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I want, I have this like dream of being able to like walk out my door, get into a plane and fly to the other side of the country or somewhere, right? Fly anywhere, Um, but have that as an option, as a mode of transportation. There's a, there's this guy I found on Instagram. He's a, a, a real estate agent in uh, Arizona and he specializes in like super wealthy uh, finding homes for super wealthy people. Uh, And there's this area I I was just like stalking his Instagram because he also happened to climb Mount Everest recently. Um, So I was really interested and he was showing this area near uh, Scottsdale uh, where people's houses are on their airstrip Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and it's like this gorgeous home and you could like drive your car right into the, um, <laughs> the hangar, get yep. in your plane, f- pull out, fly to wherever. That's those, uh, those airstrip communities are awesome. There's one about an hour away from here, just over the state line into Wisconsin. There's this hmm. city called Lake Geneva and on our way to Lake Geneva, about 20 minutes from it, there's a runway for one of those communities yeah. and that runway is like right next to the freeway so you'll get planes like flying right over you as they land oh that's cool uh, and and it's yeah they their garages are hangers they taxi into the hangar and mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really cool my it's a lifestyle <laughs> it, it is i mean my dad's airplane is at a little uh airport that doesn't have a tower um so it's it's <laughs> a, a bit of the wild west out there like yeah still have a radio and they they respect airways and whatnot but um, it's a place where if somebody wanted to, they could be doing low flybys with the smoke on down the runway and get away with it. <laughs> not saying they do cause that FAA might not, but you know, um, so it's cool. They have fun out there. Yeah. They do a like flower bombing contests. I went up with him last year. It was really fun. Uh, they have like a yearly shrimp boil and cookout and they, they do a flower bombing contest. So we went up in the decathlon. I was sitting in the back seat. We had the door open, and uh, which I always tell you a story about flying with the door open when I was eight years old. <laughs> um, we had these flower bombs, these little bo- uh, flower and like butcher paper, basically. 
and would fly over a spot on the runway and try and drop it on the target. And it was, it was scored and we didn't score very well because, you know, you need like a, almost need a couple of practice runs. We only, everybody only got two bombs and you need mm-hmm. almost like two practice bombs to figure it out and then go, that would be making a lot of flower bombs. I actually flew a plane. I didn't take off for land. I did fly a plane when I was eight years old. Um, my dad took me up in a J3 cub mm. and uh, we, the cub, you, the door opens, half it opens up and latches to the wing and the other half opens down and latches the fuselage. And you can fly it with the door open like that. And we just flew around for a few hours in J3. You're, cool. you're eight years old flying eight around old. the door open. Yep. My dad picked me up from school, went out to a Poplar Grove airport about half, half an hour away and rented a cub out there and, and took me up. Seems like it seems like a good memory, man. <laughs> it was. We came back over the house in the neighborhood and flew over everybody and circled and waved. And it's a good time. I was reading something before and that I wanted to bring up. Where's my phone? Oh man. I was looking at a, I was reading a news article or something, and it was about uh Yellowstone National Park that apparently has got flooded and uh, they had to evacuate people. They shut down the road going into the park and uh, it was because they had a ton of snow like a couple of weeks ago and it all melted while they also had rain. And they, yeah. just, they got like, you know, a whole season's worth of rain in three days and flooded the park. Anyway, tore um, that road up. The road got fucked up. Yeah. Road got, they, I saw a video of like a house or a lodge getting washed away into the river. Yeah. 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 And this is like the main entrance road to Yellowstone. Yeah. Super heavily trafficked park. Uh, yeah. And they were evacu- air evacuating people out. Anyway, the, the reason why I thought of you, I don't know why. Um, Cause I guess, cause I, right before we were recording, I was reading this and uh, I had this thought like, we're reporting on this as if we don't expect disasters to happen. And the thought that came into my head that I wrote down was uh, uh, that we act as if we have any control over mother nature. And, you know, obviously uh, from a philosophical perspective, um, we have no control. And that's, you know, but, but we act in, in a way that like we, we get upset when things go wrong and we don't expect disasters to happen. And I'm sure there's some level of expectation, like you got to be ready for anything, but we report on, you, you read these articles and it gets reported on as if, you know, we had no idea this would ever happen. Like, well, something bad is going to happen at some point. <laughs> some point, just because Yellowstone's entrance road stayed there that long. Right. I mean, the earth, mother nature has reshaped this earth more times than we know. And you think that what we put there is always going to be there? No, no. I like to think that m- nature has a plan and, uh, yeah. and at any moment it can, ch- that plan can change too. And we are victims to it. We are uh, pieces on the, on the chessboard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. 
it's interesting because there's all that excess water in Yellowstone. And then you look yeah. at it, was what is it? Lake Mead is insanely low, like down lower than any of their boat ramps right now. Mm. You know, uh, out west. So it's like, well, the water's still there. It's just up in Yellowstone right now. It's just up there. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder too, um, because the other side of that statement is, uh, you know, there are things we can do to influence our environment. Um, mm. and, and allegedly we are affecting nature with, uh, you know, whether, what, whatever you believe, but the climate change and, um, global warming as people call it, mm-hmm. I, you know, does that mean we have the ability to reverse it, to control these things? Right. Do we have any say over what happens, you know, or is that, is that all part of the plan for things like that to happen? Because we're part of nature. Mm, I like that. And I mean, I was, I was listening to the, the episode I published with Brooks and Dave today and yeah, talking about the same people who say that global warming is going on and it's a big thing. Brooks made this point beautifully at the front end of that episode. They're, they're all buying water from property still. And they're telling us that we're going to have to start eating bugs while at their conventions that they fly into on their private jets, they're eating grass fed beef. So there's a, there's a disconnect between the message and what they're doing. <laughs> it's all for show, right? Little tiny bit. All for power. Yeah, now we're back to Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> yeah, um, one of the it's phrases that's very get, relevant. <laughs> one of the phrases that gets tossed around that book is fair share. Mm, yeah. I want my fair share. What is your fair share? Like what what did you what, what you know? And, it sounds like book, sounds like uh communism. Oh, a little tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yes, I, I think that's the point. Yeah. I mean who, who determines fit who determines that though? Like who is who determines what's fair or unfair? Uh the ones in power. So then you get right somehow you figure out their to how, how to be their friends, and because you're their friend, you can get your fair share. Hmm. Otherwise, no. Um my dad so there's a Clint Eastwood scene. Like, I don't, I don't deserve this. And uh, we used to go, deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. Like people talk about that. Like, well, I, I deserve. Do you? Because like, if we deserved something, I'd imagine we'd have it. You know, like if you truly deserve to be successful, it's likely because you put in the work to be successful. If you deserve to have a thriving business, it's likely because you have a thriving, you, you created a thriving business and uh, your fair share. I want my fair share. What is a fair share? How, what is fair about it? How, how do we create a fair share in? <clears throat> There's a quote from Atlas Shrugged. It's my uncle's go-to quote and it's also Adam Chin's. Go to quote. And uh, 
something along the lines. What I would have to look it up, hmm. but it is uh, when you make the means of production evil and there we go. I'm gonna look it up right now. I'm, I'm pulling it. a Jamie. I'm pulling a Jamie. <laughs> you make the means of production. We make when you made. Here it is. This is my Uncle Rich's and Adam Chin's favorite mm-hmm. quote. So when I had Adam on my podcast the first time and he broke this quote out and he knows it by heart. Yeah. When you have made evil the means of survival, do not expect men to remain good. Do not expect them to stay moral and lose their lives for the purpose of becoming the fodder of the immoral. Do not expect them to produce when production is punished and looting rewarded. Do not ask who is destroying the world? You are. What does that? Uh, what does that say? How would how would you describe that in in a way that the average person could understand? <laughs> Out of context, because you know to yeah. Um, Context is everything, and that book does really, really good job of painting a picture. You know, I mean, she opens it up by describing Dagny Taggart's bony fingers. Like, yeah, you you, you cannot. It's fascinating. Cast, you can't cast a movie for Atlas Shrugged because to find actors and actresses that fit the exquisite physical subscriptions, it uh, prescriptions. It's they're very specific description descriptions. <laughs> Third word. It's a charm. Can you guys tell I'm fasted? <laughs> Chase is uh, hungry, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I'm hungry. Um, when we talk about making evil the means of survival, like we're we're going back to that fair share piece, right? When you take and you make it evil to turn a profit or to to turn a fair profit, and you make it harder and harder for people to build their own purpose and make it immoral for them to have their own thing. Well, they're likely going to stop producing. They're not going to want to chase their own, own value for the purpose of it being taken by somebody else. They're Mm -hmm. going to find a way to make it their own again. And like, when we talk about production is punished and looting rewarded, it's almost like if certain cities said that you're not going to be arrested for shoplifting under a certain value. It's, it's almost like that looting mm-hmm. quite literally rewarded. Then why would anybody go out and remain a good man? You know, and there are some people that would, and I'm using some extreme words here. You can fully expect some individuals to lean into that looting, which is rewarded because why go do something that is going to be pulled apart by others. That's my my off the cuff take on it. Yeah, I'm when I when I think I think about this book all the time now because well, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the middle of it and I'm you know intent on uh, taking as much out of it that, as I can, you know. 
why is looting rewarded? What would be the what would be the need for that? You know, is it nobility? Is it is it to be seen as uh, doing something for the lesser, right? Or is is it for public image? Does what what power is there gained in rewarding that? That is uh, the power gained in rewarding loot. Like you said, it's for the lesser. Uh, we're creating. Mm, there's a fountainhead quote that aligns with that very well, um, and people find their self worth in. in propping others up, right? When looting is rewarded. There are certain individuals who, instead of building their own purpose or their own cause or their own, uh, their own reward, they will loot from others, loot from individuals. They're not Robin Hood, right? They're not taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Um, they're quite literally looting and then redistributing the the fruits of others' labors. And now they seem like a hero to these people, but the person that did the work, mm, what do they get? It's almost as if, oh man, look at all this soft talk, but we're <laughs> speculating. We are speculating here. So it's, I'll allow it. <laughs> as if doing the work is fruitless. And if it's fruitless, what, what will we, what do we do with it? <laughs> like, why would we do it? Now people listening, if they're still with us are having an existential crisis <laughs> um, as, as I am. <laughs> as I <Yeah>. am. <laughs> This is... uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep reading and uh, and, and get so deep into this. It's it's, it's gonna be wonderful. Um, it's good. It's good to be able to talk to someone about this book, by the way, because there's so much to it. Um, and it, you really get involved in the storyline. You really get into it. You know. Oh yeah, this is the right move because as i start thinking about it i get chills um i've been bouncing from book to book recently i'm reading yeah. Plato's republic and I'm like what something good to read and mm. this is the second conversation about atlas shrugged i had today we have a copy in the house so mm. i do believe that i will be picking up that copy of atlas shrugged and taking uh my second dip into it today because i i've only read it once so it's once is is a lot it's a big it's a big undertaking man yeah uh from a length perspective and it's a deep dive like things you know you're going to be exploring ideas for sure yeah i mean Ayn rand's whole philosophy is objective vision objectivism right so, objective vision <laughs> sounds objective like a vision <laughs> sounds like a superpower <laughs> you know what it is when you can master it well you could be 
I mean, for anybody who can be truly objective, and this is uh, the, the community that brought us together, you know, in Lifted, this is what the words and mastering your stories will help you do is become objective about your life, become more objective for anybody to be truly objective about their own life. That'd be a stretch, but objectivism hmm. creates, in my opinion, is a good road to freedom. Because when we can let go of the emotional attachment to things and become truly objective about what is going on, I mean, we're going to move forward a whole lot more unhindered. I, I question that sometimes, man. I question whether or not being tr- as objective as possible is truly freeing or is it really uh, limiting Mm. I, I I do envy some people's ability to, uh, to to go through every emotion, you know. Yeah, and that's. I'm glad you went there because I take back my statement. Um, Ooh. the the ability to be objective when it matters most is okay. extremely powerful and while also retaining the ability to dive deep into an emotion when it shows up and know where it comes from. Hmm. Um, and the quote from the fountainhead, <laughs> because you totally need another Ayn Rand book to read. Yeah. And isn't that the root of every despicable action? Not selfishness, but precisely the absence of a self. Look at them. The man who cheats and lies, but preserves a respectable front. He knows himself to be dishonest, but others think he's honest, and he derives his self-respect from that second hand. The man who takes credit for an achievement which is not his own. He knows himself to be mediocre, but he's great in the eyes of others. The frustrated wretch who professes his love for the inferior and clings to those less endowed in order to establish his own superiority by comparison. There's a lot to extrapolate. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot there. We're going down a deep path, man. And what what I think you were getting at when referencing lifted and objectivism and yeah, um, that philosophy of going about life, right? What's mm-hmm. coming up now? Uh, and I used to when I when I first learned of of stoicism, like that was my entry point into this this con these concepts of Actually, no, it, scratch that. It was when I first watched Star Wars and I, and I started to understand what a Jedi was. Um, and I read, I read something recently. I read a, 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 an actual paper about comparing Jedi to Stoicism. And uh, it, it was interesting. But the, what I, the, the idea that I had from, from that and if you know anything about Star Wars or that 
it was a whole philosophy, right? It was a religion um, around being so in control of your, your emotional state. Um, and I took it to the point of like, regardless of your emotional state, and that's why I said I really uh, sometimes envy people who can feel and, and express their emotions really well, um, because I've I've felt this need um, to repress emo- my emotional state or not allow it to go into the extremes. And usually, you know how that goes, right? You, you can only bottle something up so long, right? That eventually. Pff, bursts and it gets you know it's 10 times worse than you you thought it would be at the time um but growing up looking at those um examples of objectivism being being objective being a casual observer of life and accepting that death is inevitable right i thought to myself well that means i really there's no reason to be pissed off or too happy. So I'm just going to have no feelings. Mm. Uh, That's where my, my definition of objective came from. It's hard. It it made, it made it hard. It, It can, you know, I still makes it hard because I'm, I'm recognizing that, Oh, well, you know, it's good to feel. It's good to feel things. And it's also great to be objective. Yeah. I, and I imagine the two going hand in hand. Yeah. You, when you develop, when, when we develop the ability to feel our feelings all the way through and feel them accurately and mm-hmm. then leave them where they're supposed to stay as opposed to carrying them into a situation where they are not attached to. Well, then we can be objective about things other than that. It's when we don't feel them all the way through, when we get into them and we choose to stay in them for too long, that we carry them into other decisions and other uh, conversations that limit our ability to be objective. Yeah, if you hold on to it. Yeah. I I was talking to... I was talking to a client yesterday. We were on a call, um, and she, we were talking about anxiety. And the question I posed was, "Well, where does it show up in your day, and how?" Um, and she proceeded to list uh, the, you know, the and people, places, events, right throughout throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay. And, and as you go into each one, each individual one, right, they were all a little bit different. And the actual the attached emotion was actually completely different for each one. Um, it wasn't anxiety, it was uh, some fear, some tiredness, some resentment, some anger, confusion, it was all a whole bunch of other things. Um, and yet, for some reason, the word anxiety was stuck stuck attached to the story of what she has or what she is anxious and uh i challenged her to you know next time you're feeling something right one of these things just ask yourself am am i anxious 
or am I sad? Am I anxious or am I confused? What, what, let's say, work to identify like what it actually is. And, and I, I really believe um, we're not taught how to communicate our feelings, our emotions accurately, like you said, well enough <laughs> or at all, really at all at a young age, um, thanks to soft talk mostly. And also uh, an inability to describe things right, without feeling um, like we're doing something wrong or feeling no. uh, judged, right? Well, I love that you brought that up at a young age. I love that you know, to, to use the client mm-hmm. example as well. I was on a call with a client yesterday and it's like at, from a young age, he was told the, you are to be seen and not heard. You know, the, you, you don't know any better. You're mm-hmm. just a kid. And to correlate that with what you're saying, how are yeah. we supposed to get in touch with our feelings at a young age if, with hearing things like I'm to be seen and not heard? Like if I'm to be not heard, then I'm, I'm going to not want to hear myself and I can't hear myself and I, I, I can't feel myself. And that's, that's a slippery slope. And I'm really excited for the up and coming generation uh, being raised by parents such as ourselves. I'll give us both a pat on the back uh, who are more aware of this and who are creating pe- people who are in touch with themselves people yeah not sheep yeah exactly <laughs> yes that dude my uh my my dad was over recently uh and he sees my son like maybe once a month now mm-hmm. far too far too little honestly I wish it was more um anyway my son you know nine months old he started crying babies do that yeah. and my dad you know he's he's in his 60s uh definitely from that boys don't cry era so he looked at him and said in a very calming tone don't cry boys aren't supposed to cry <laughs> um i corrected him of course I was like let him cry it's, it's all good yeah how do we know like why he's crying we don't, we don't know what, what he's feeling. So let him express it, whatever. And then my dad called me soft, which I thought was funny. <laughs> um, but, it's a generational but, but the fact thing. like the, the tone that, that he said that in was so uh, non-conflicting, right? Or right. There, was, there was no malice to it. It was very, very like calming and like, like affectionate. Yeah. Okay. That's all right. Boys don't like, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I wonder what generational shifts our parents saw from coming from their parents. You know, because Mm -hmm. like my dad talked about, you know, he was a tough guy and he he would tell me stories about how people were scared of him. And he taught me how to box at a young age. Um, When I was much shorter than my dad, I gave him a bloody nose because, you know, he was teaching me how to, cover up yeah. and then find a hole. And then I, I stuck my left hand out and popped him in the nose and just started dripping down. And mm. that, that physicality was taught before any ability to hear myself 
or to accurately communicate that. And to my dad's credit, he wasn't taught any of that. Yeah, he was taught zero of that. It was it was the like you're talking about, boys don't cry, be tough, be a man. So it's really interesting. I would love to go back like three generations and see what the shift was there. You know, each generation, (laughs) what was the gap that was jumped? I'll tell you this, man, you're about to be a father. And, uh, uh, when I, when I became a dad, I realized, um, I mean, I realized a lot of things I went through a lot of like personal transformation. Um, and then also my, my conversations shifted with my parents um, I noticed they started talking about things a bit differently and I could relate. Um, like there was this new relatability like that we had before that we had not had in the past. And that opened up a lot of doors. We can say like stories I hadn't heard. And I'm like, you know, I, you know, someone for 30 something years, you think you heard a lot of stories or heard and not heard all the beliefs but then this you know it changes something right you become a parent now we're relating on that level and they're watching you go through all the things right all the phases Mm -hmm. and they're like uh recalling their you know the time that they went through the memories and then on my side on my side i'm like man i have so much more compassion for my parents now uh you know, I look at my son and I'm like, I fucking love the kid so much. And I like, I can't imagine negation acknowledgement. I can't imagine um, like hurting that relationship. Mm. And yet I've had so much like hurt in my relationship with my parents. Um, and now I, and now I can see from their perspective, like what that did, what that caused the, you know, the, the internal pain, the internal struggle, it changes the whole dynamic, you know, and it, it's, it's in, it's really lightening. It's a lightening feeling. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because I, I've started to yeah. have a, a bit of that myself. Um, yeah. Uh, I was actually, I had some stuff rolling around my head and I jumped down with our buddy, Ryan Walla and we, uh, we riffed for a bit and he helped me. Cause I, I knew, I knew, um, we had some, some stuff. I mean, you know, my, my brother died last year and there's been some stuff stirring and I wrote a bunch of letters to my parents. And at the yeah. same time, I was like, it doesn't feel fully aligned giving them to them, but something is in me is like, they need to read this. Um, and when, after I hopped down with Ryan, I was like, it's, that's their healing that I'm trying to force. Um, mm. And, and then in talking about the perspective shift, it's like, man, a few of the conversations I've had with my dad and I'm like seeing it from a different light and it's, it's powerful. And after I had that shift, we went out to dinner for Sarah, my wife's birthday. My parents were there. And it was the most open, light conversation I've had with my father in a while. It was great. 
I'm so I'm so excited for you. It's gonna be a blast. <laughs> you you think you think you're gonna be like uh, the girl dad? I mean, to say I'm gonna be the <laughs> girl dad. There's other girl dads out there, you know, and. Yes, <laughs> I could see you um, with a, with a pink backpack just strolling through the strolling to the park. <laughs> who says I don't already have it? <laughs> been, yeah. We've been waiting for this moment. It'll be it's a blast. Great, you know, there's a a part of me that wanted a boy to carry on the Charles Bennett Tolleson thing, and at mm-hmm. the same time, like as soon as I found out I was having a girl, I got so excited. Yeah, would have would there have been a fourth a fourth one? Yeah, that would have been the name. Would yeah. have been Charles Bennett Tolleson the fourth. And how'd you settle uh, on on Thea? Ooh, good question. Theodora has been, I guess, in Sarah's list of names since like college. Even though she was like her friend, her the girl in the group of friends that said she didn't want to get married, and, like right. So, you know, one of those dichotomies. She had a bunch of, she liked like magical kind of names, elven kind mm. of stuff, Harry Potter reminders. And yeah, we were bouncing back and forth. There was uh, Quinn was mm. there for a bit. Uh, and then it, it wasn't. And it was between th- three. It was Theodora. Um, Atlas was actually on there. Um it was it was a front runner. It was Theodora Atlas and something else. Uh, that wasn't a front runner. She just she was just respecting you by allowing you to think it was a front runner. I didn't put it up there. She did. She tossed yeah. it out there and she actually liked it. Like she likes the kind of so I'm like, hey, okay. I'll, I'll name our daughter Atlas. I think uh, once other people were kind of like, oh, what Atlas? So that was part of it. And Theodora means divine gift. Mm. Thea means goddess. Um, and Sarah really likes the fact that when our daughter's young, she can call her teddy bear. So, <laughs> yeah, that works. Yeah. Just thinking ahead, too. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. There's a, there's a lot of power in picking a person's name. It, if, if when, I, I remember it feeling like a responsibility. Yeah, we went in on it on a getting lifted show when we had Bryn Daler on. Oh yeah, talking about names and the the significance behind them, because her original name Bryn was her uh, middle name. She mm. went by her first name for a long time in her life, and then Jared Davis actually asked her at Burning Man one time they were riding bikes. He's like, "If you could change your name, what would it be?" She's like, "Bryn." He goes. They stop and they're with a the group and he circles everyone around his Jared way. He's like, everyone, I have an announcement. I would like you to meet Bryn. <laughs> and just stuck. You know, um, Jared would, would do that. He would. He's a, Man. he's a good guy. I could imagine that situation too. And she was fully ready to embrace it too, to embrace the change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't talk once about adventure on this conversation. This whole conversation was an adventure. The, the, 
every conversation together is an adventure chase. Right. <laughs> um, at least the ones we've had, they, they, sometimes they go into far off lands and we have to retrieve them. And sometimes they're like right here in front of you, right. Hard to miss um, in your face conversations. Yes. I want to know though, like one, you know, I do have one more question. I want to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, what, what is something you've learned from your adventures? What's, what's a, what's a lesson that you've taken away from a mistake that you've made or a time that you felt afraid? Hmm. It's a pretty broad, pretty broad question too. Lesson I've made by a mistake I've, or lesson I've learned by a mistake I've made. I meant to rhyme there also just heads up. Did you mean to, or did you? Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing that on purpose subtly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lesson I learned in my adventures is to slow down. slow down my perception of things. And this has been uh, a common theme that, you know, whether it be in interactions with people who I care about or in business decisions to realize that the knee jerk, that first perception is often, even if it's right, requires another look. Um, Where'd you learn that? All over the place. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, were there times where you, uh, you know, made snap decisions and been, you know, suffered the consequences in some way? So yes. Um, Before I became the, good communicator that I am now. Uh, there were times where Sarah and I would have stupid little bickering arguments and in an effort to prove a point, I'd say something. And next thing you know, she's crying. Uh, and I would think I was so right, right? Because I was wronged. And that, uh, I was wrong and thinking I was wrong. Um, hmm. Lean into Byron Katie's. Who would I be without that thought? Cause it's just a thought. Uh, and when that, when that becomes real, then you can separate yourself from the emotion, in that situation and look at it as far as like a specific, very specific <laughs> adventure or lesson. So it's hard to pinpoint. Uh, which is a, a theme with me. Like I'll read a book and I'll integrate a lot of it into my life. And then to go back and remember specific examples is difficult. Mm. You you think in principles and yeah. And, principles transcend yeah. paradigms. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very similar. Uh, I'll remember. Um, I'll remember the moral of the story more than the story, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but the, a lot of times that's how we process things and we learn it's, you know, we tend to batch things and, uh, you can implant memories. <laughs> you, you can create memories. Yeah. Um, it's mistakes were made, but not by me. It's a book on cognitive dissonance and self-justification. Mm. And they talk in there about uh, people creating memories to justify decisions that they've made. How is that different from lying? It's not. Just these people mm. actually believe they're telling the truth. So mm. I guess that's how it's like. It's not different. Um, and it, it's a whole nother rabbit hole for another time. And <laughs> it, it really opens like it, it started to create a stir in me around the whole narcissism thing because a narcissist is often and on uh, just a, a massively unhealed individual. And it's great to recognize and create awareness around if you need to separate yourself from a situation and to demonize a narcissist, like a, a true narcissist doesn't realize they're doing it. Like one that, like, if you ask yourself, am I being a nar narcissistic right now? You're likely not a narcissist. Yeah. If you care no. enough to think that you're yeah. not a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. So where's, so where's the, the unhealed trauma? the stories, if you will, mm. that are creating those narcissistic patterns. And that's, that's the, the helper in me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of my lessons is uh, people who I had cut out of my life or thought about cutting out or distancing myself from because they have narcissistic tendencies well, if I've healed all my shit or if I've healed as much of my stuff as I'm aware of, then can I create uh, enough peace to hold space for them efficiently? Mm. That goes back to what, what we talked about before with the, um, you know, when you were in the military and there's leadership that's subpar and you could be the, the bigger person, right? Mm-hmm you could hold space for them and be compassionate. It's nice to, it's nice to think about now. Yeah. Um, but to actually be in that, in that realm, in that environment, in that emotional state, whatever other factors are there, right? Is it realistic? Um, and does it even matter? Does it even matter? Does it even matter? <laughs> I have a lot. Of, I've, I've ended a lot of conversations thinking that <laughs> that's, uh, oh man, that says a lot about my, about my thought process. <laughs> Does any of this even matter? I mean, cosmically, maybe Cosmic. in the fact that we're here to learn a lesson. Yes. Like we, we, we came here to play the game. So did did that's true how's uh how's primal man going amazing um cohort one's crushing it They're absolutely crushing it i'm sending out an email today with uh updates and one of the guys last night and on our group call he's uh, or night before last he's talking about 
when he first got into it, his girlfriend was like, but I like you a little heavy. Ooh. And then, yeah. So like she loved his uh, thicker appearance, you know, and cool. That's awesome. And now that she sees what it's doing for his confidence, his mood and his uh, social abilities, she is fully supportive, reminding yeah. him to drink water. She started drinking more water. So it's really cool. Stuff like that. That means that previously she was disappointed with his mood and social abilities. Something, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, it, it was. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for asking. Of course, man. Uh, it's been, it's been really exciting watching you transition. And I know the last time you, you were on my podcast, not, I mean, we changed the name, but same podcast, basically. Um, you were at a different point. You were selling your gym mm. thinking, you know, it was like right around that point where you decided I'm going to, I'm done with this or I'm, I'm ready to move on. Um, and then we got to meet in, in real life in person and hang out. And, uh, you know, both of us are going through some different trans, some transitional periods for sure. Uh, so yeah, man, it's been really cool to see what you've accomplished in the last couple of months. And, uh, you know, of course, of course I knew it would, it would work out. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah. What's, what's next? Do you have anything planned? Anything that you're excited about? Uh, Primal Man Cohort 2. We are revamping. I'm adding a whole nother module to Primal Man. Uh, and taking the input from the guys in Cohort 1. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, cohort 2 will launch in late July, early August. So, And then uh, Austin Linney, uh, Conrad Kozuch, who's also an enlisted uh, level one, and I are, have started the company. It's literally what it's called. The company. the company, the company consulting, and we have multiple companies under us, uh, a sales company, marketing, uh, to, uh, and now a, a task company uh, with world-class VAs. Like we, we ran through a bunch before we found these guys and we're rolling up a dumb for you service to come in and overhaul companies. And I am there to bring the, the words and the lifestyle stuff. So that their mindset and their physical health can be as on point as their company's bottom line. That's, that's powerful, man. That's a big undertaking to also to uh, have the confidence to go in and revamp someone's business. It's, uh, you know, I, where my, and this is likely a little bit of my imposter syndrome, all the soft talk and knowledge. Um, <laughs> yeah, all good. It's uh, Austin and Conrad are the business guys. Uh, Conrad's the, the systems guy. He's built multiple businesses before. Austin's been coaching mindset and business development for a while. Um, I put the two of them in the same room and I've, I've helped the two of them in the past and I get to, I get to bring my unique skill set to the table. So, mm. but everyone serves a purpose. Yeah. Um, to fucking talk about humility, right? Uh, a big uh, problem I've experienced and seen a lot is, is oftentimes people who uh, don't have certain skills, they feel that they have no skills. 
and their their value is therefore less all right meanwhile on the other side uh you know i don't know what people say behind closed doors how people talk about me um and i've heard uh you know testimonies right of from people of like how, how i helped them and they can't even begin to like think of how they could repay mike that feels good you know validation that's it's key so hum- I, good takeaway from this conversation by the way humility man is is necessary and also so is validation once in yep. a while i i imagine uh, the proper amount of validation helps to form the correct amount of humility mm. when we're when we're sure in ourselves we know when we can set our own biases and ego aside to receive what's valuable yeah you need some certainty you yeah. need to have some certainty behind your words and behind your actions otherwise uh things don't really get done Mm-mm. right very very effectively or efficiently no what is what does it mean for you what does fit for adventure mean for you or mean to you mm. on a like we could take like my brain goes two separate directions. Uh, like go, a, go in both. Yeah. A micro view of like fit for adventure. Like I have my gear and I'm physically in shape for climbing up this mountain or going on this whitewater kayak trip or whatever. And I'm, I'm ready mentally for that. And when we extrapolate that out into life, what it means to me is that we can <laughs> look at that. That's fit for adventure. Yeah. What it, what it means to me is that we have our gear and that gear mm. is in, within us uh-huh that we have gears everything well oiled too <laughs> yes gears are well oiled and we have the proper loadout and preparation for whatever adventure may come to us by clearing out all the junk because you got to be light enough for the adventure right mm. so you don't want to carry excess stuff in there at the same time, you have to have a system that's resilient enough to go on adventure. Ooh. So that was, that was good. I, I've been asking everyone that question to end this, this show. Um, and I'm going to keep doing it, man, no matter how many people I get, because I, I get something a little different every time. Um, and sometimes it's like expected. I can, I can, uh, imagine what you're going to say. And then that was really, that was great. I loved it, man. Um, I'll end on this. Thank you. Thanks for your friendship, man. Thanks for, thanks for talking and, uh, indulging me in my curiosities for sure. Oh, thank you, brother. I I appreciate the conversation (laughs) and the time always. Um, thank you for thank you to the listeners for sticking around this long and putting up with my uh my theories and uh i've been really distracted the last 10 minutes because my wife brought my son in and just dropped him on the floor and he's just doing things now <laughs> <laughs> worth it worthy distraction yeah uh this is this is parenthood. This is what working from home is like too. <laughs> it's great. 
Looking forward to it. It is always amazing to talk to Chase Tollison. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Chase, visit chasetollison.com. It's that easy. Or on Instagram at Coach Chase Tollison. You could listen to him on Spotify. He's got an album out called Mystical Giants. He's got his podcast, The Primal Man Pathway. He's everywhere. Google Chase Tollison. I imagine you'll find him. And we talked about a lot of leadership characteristics and skills today. And one of the ones that I want to highlight is the ability to detach and be objective. And this helps a lot when it comes to both decision making and problem solving. And these are two of the 10 essential skills for leadership. And when we can implement detachment and objectivism into our decision making, meaning we can separate ourselves and our emotional attachment from the situation at hand or from the decision we have to make, then life becomes a lot easier. Or really, you start to get the results you actually want. You see, most of the time, when you are uh, needing to make a decision or you're handling a problem that's in front of you, if you go into it with an emotional attachment to a specific outcome, then you'll likely experience a lot of frustration and a lot of problems along the way because you are, lay, you are assuming that things are going to work out the way that you want them to, not the way that is best for the common good or for the, uh, the objective goal. And it does help here to have very specific, clear goals, values, a vision, and make decisions based on what's important to you. That's a known factor. It's also really important to say to yourself or think to yourself, am I, am I basing my decision on my opinion or my experience with things, or am I basing my decision on facts? And there is a place for both, and I invite you to challenge yourself in that way and if you would like some support then the impact coaching course might be the best use and best fit for you in the impact course we will teach you exactly how to utilize these leadership skills like decision making and problem solving so you can improve all of your relationships, so you can build your business to be up, uh, to be as successful as you know it can be, and so you can really feel confident as a leader and as a guide and as a, uh, a creator in with what you do and for the people that you care about, just like Chase. So I encourage you to visit mysummit.academy/impact. Fill out the application in there and you'll really get to dive in to the strengths that you have as a leader and learn how to leverage those and also understand how you can improve upon these skills that you might not have as much experience with or you've struggled with in the past. And oftentimes, it only takes awareness to start to improve. 
And then having the, the, the accountability and the coaching that you'll get in the impact program from me and my team one-on-one and with your group uh, is really impactful and really powerful in its ability to give you results or at least start to make the changes. And, and so I really encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity Make sure you go back and listen to some parts from this episode too because there are a lot of valuable tools that you can use and implement right now that might be really helpful. Again, visit mysummit.academy impact, fill out the application, and let's get you in to the next class. I hope to see you succeed. I am so excited for you, and I'll see you on the summit.